interaction. They do. Things have first certainly changed. It reminds me of years ago in the 80s when uh, HIV was first being identified and people were, were starting to get infected with the, with the uh, immunodeficiency virus. And the way it was put out there in culture, it was as if everybody was equally suspect to it. You know, even if you were, you know, not that you should be promiscuous, but even if you were, like, in college and somewhat promiscuous or a younger person. But, but the notion that was out there, the idea, instead of the fact that it was, by and large, a disease amongst homosexuals and drug users, it, they acted as if anybody could potentially get this. And again, all the younger people in the 80s sort of bought that, sort of bought into that as well. Now, as it is, that's a good thing. It's, it's almost a good sort of misinformation to believe, but gee, it's crazy. Well, that's the reasoning behind uh, people being examined when you go through the airport, uh, you'll get it on airport. Yes. They've been doing strip searches on uh, nuns. That's right. That's right. So, so we, we, that's, that's the culture we're in, and we're, we're, we're dealing increasingly with people that are not thinking well. That's just the case. People don't think well. They emote. Here's a great example. If you do this, especially, um, uh, I don't see a lot of sort of under 30 among us, right? I am. Uh, yeah, I know you are. That's why I said I don't see a lot of. Uh, I had you in my mind as the exception. But the, but the simple, but this is something, this is something that I, I loathe when I hear this. And I just want to call it out every time I see it. So we're in a meeting the other day, and the gentleman was trying to make a point about some data, some statistics. And he said something like, I feel like that hasn't been the case. No, it, it had to be like, it almost be like saying, I feel like 6 plus 6 isn't 12. You know, it was like, instead of saying, have you heard this? You listen to young people, they'll say this all the time. You know, I, I feel like, you know, um, and then they'll follow it up with some statistical or some factual sort of uh, comment. And I'm like, how do you do that? How, how do we get to the point where instead of saying, well, this is sort of my opinion. I see the facts do this. The guy says something like, well, I feel like when it has nothing to do with emotions, but it's all become emotions. Everything is about emotions. Mm-hmm. Everyone's just running around vomiting emotion on everybody. We are a sick, sick culture, Dave. You know what I've found in my own life is the better my walk, the thicker my skin is. Yeah, yeah. And it's, but you know, yeah, and that should be the case. But when people are outside of Christ, it's not. This it doesn't matter. They don't have a good walk and a bad walk. They have. They might have a. They might have a. If, if they're having a good day because you know their girlfriend or their guy friend is being nice to them, or things are going good, then they might have a better day. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, I say all that to say we are in a very different. This is a real conundrum. We're in a. It's a conundrum that we're in. It is so difficult to get people to articulate. Not just their emotions, but why do you maintain that position given what I've just told you? Okay? Why is it so difficult for you to accept the fact of an historical Jesus? Why do you continue to say, I believe all religions are the same? Well, we have an historically identified, recognized Jesus, and we have the claim of a resurrection based on extremely good evidence, and how do you possibly account for this evidence? Here are my reasons for the resurrection. Big bang, bing, boom. Well, I just feel like Jesus can't be the only God. Wait. You know, you almost want to just... It's very frustrating. Especially if you're, you know, analytical sort of in the way that I am. Um, And that's why it's interesting. I caught myself praying the other night when I was at Bible study that that God would send certain people to other people and not me. (laughs) Right? No, I did. I, I, I prayed that. I, I caught myself praying that. I said, Lord, if someone needs real softness and real gentleness, please send them to somebody else because you haven't gifted me in that way. And I'm having a hard time getting there. Right? You're honest, Okay, run back. Okay. Let's pick up then on this with all that in sort of in the background. Because this is always going on in the background. Remember, we're always, we're always in an environment of some kind. We're in an environment now where it's difficult to have intelligent conversation. I just say all those things to help set us up for all the stuff that's always going on in the background. Uh, in the last session, we focused on two important tasks, okay, as we continue through our uh, pro-life apologetic training with the goal of making abortion unthinkable, but in the meantime, also doing what we can to make it illegal. Uh, we focused on two important tasks. The first was we had to simplify the debate because if you go back to our first lesson, I said... The pro-life apologist has four basic tasks. 
holding up the wrong number here. From four. four. It's like, you know, there's only, I said to the, one of the owners of the company the other day, he said, you know, Dick, there's three types of people in this world. There are those that are good at math and those that aren't. And so we, I find myself in that place. Um, some of you didn't get that. See me later. I said at the very beginning, we have four tasks as pro-life apologists, right? We need to restore meaning to the word abortion. Okay. By the way, has anyone in here not ever looked at abor- graphic abortion photos? Is there anyone ever not? Okay, I would strongly suggest that you do. Get the most graphic video that you watch something and see the horror. You have to. I, I really believe you have to. I don't think that we can conceptualize the significance of it enough. When you see how brutal it is, it helps. Um, so, we've got to restore meaning to the word abortion. Okay? We have to sort of, we have to simplify the issue. All right, we have to simplify it. We have to keep it simple. Then we have to present our argument. We have to present our case. And then we have to answer objections. Okay? No different than any sort of legal proceeding almost. So, last week we did this. We simplified the debate. We reduced the issue to one critical question, which is what? Is the unborn yeah, what is the unborn, right? Not just sort of is the unborn human. That, that's okay, but what is the unborn, right? That's the question. What is the unborn? And we offer the illustration, can I kill this, for clarification. Because that's what we have to ask ourselves in any case. Can we kill this? Can we do this? And by can we, we're, we're, we're asking not only an evidential, evidentiary question, but a moral question. And then second, we took a look at, we didn't spend a lot of time, uh, time on, uh, just, just a tight sort of three-step moral logic of pro-life persuasion. Okay? which is one, that's the first step, it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Okay? It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Step two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. Right? Because if it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, and if the unborn is human, then just by virtue of logic, common sense, abortion is wrong. Okay? That's, that's an un... There's nothing wrong with that argument. There's nothing wrong with the conclusion if the premises are good. And remember, people may not like sort of the premises or the arguments, but if the arguments are good, the conclusion always necessarily follows. Okay, it's just a law of logic. If the arguments are good, the, the, the conclusion follows. Uh, any, any, have you seen, have you interacted with, have you pretended? This is what I want you to do. When you see stuff in the news, pretend something. When you hear somebody say something, pretend you're there interacting with that person. You know what I mean? Just, just, just do that a little bit. Engage them a little bit. You just never know what might come up. You know? I was at a supermarket yesterday. Big Y is doing away with all their plastic bags as of August 1st. I said, are you still going to have plastic bags for the meat? Because they do that for contamination. They said, yes, we will. The young guy working their bag, he said, yeah, he says... He says, I think we'll have, I said to the lady working, because I could tell she was old enough, I said, you remember 20 years ago why we went to plastic, right? Because it was bad to be using all that paper. Now they're going to go back to brown bags and stuff, right? And the young guy working there says, yeah, he says, I don't know if uh, brown bags are any better because you've got to cut down those trees and then you've got to burn stuff and you're putting all that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And I said, yeah, but don't forget, carbon is a basic fundamental building block of all life. So whatever you're going to do to limit it, you can't limit it too much. Just to put it out there. Just maybe he'll think about that. Maybe he'll. Same thing with abortion. When you hear something and you see something, say something. Something small. You don't have to start a fight. You know, you don't. And you sent around an email this morning, Gary, that said something like, and you were quoting someone that says, I'd much rather be, I'd much rather have the words of rebuke offense me than the spirit of the rebuke offend me. Right? Because we have to have an offensive spirit. Or we can have words just by virtue of what they are be offensive. Mm. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That could be offensive to someone. It'll be doubly offensive to say, no, listen, moron, this is what Jesus said, and you better listen to him, you sinning jerk. He said, I'm the... Right? So you can come at it with the wrong spirit altogether. So we want to be that way with abortion too, as difficult as it is, and as angry as it might make us. And as silly as we might think the arguments are, and as dismissive, and, and uh, in many cases, um, uh, 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 polyandrous as they may be, I'm, I'm not polyandrous, um, I forget the word right now, sort of sexism against men. Um, I just forget the word right now. What is that? Where's Kelly? She would know that word. 
Who's that word? The word that's used, you know, it's misogynist if you're sexist against women. It's um, misandry. It's misandry if you're, if you're that way about men. Okay, so if you're sexist towards men. So, just this whole idea of, oh, this is just a women's issue sort of thing, right? So you hear those things, or you, you express your opinion about something and you're labeled a racist just because you have an opinion, right? So you ask the question, hmm, what do we do about 70% fatherlessness in black communities in the inner city? Why can't we talk about that, right? You're a racist just for bringing it up. Well, it, it's that way with so many things. So it's difficult. We're in an anti-intellectual climate. It's all about feeling. It's all about emotion. Fa- feelings and emotions don't get you there. And so, uh, in this session, we're going to answer the question, what is the unborn, right? Last week, we focused on the moral problem of the abortion. If the unborn is human, right? We talked about that. If the unborn is human, and we dealt with that, this week we're going to shift from the if to the is. We're going to make our case that the unborn is human. And so we're going to learn some scientific evidence that supports the argument that abortion kills a real human being. Okay? We'll learn that the, <clears throat> that the unborn is alive. This is not difficult. This isn't advanced science. That the unborn is a distinct individual being, not the mother's body. Okay? So we can be able to have the evidence we need to dispense with the I can do what I want with my own body, or it's the woman's body argument, and the unborn is a human being. Okay? Those are sort of the three main things we're going to point to. And if we can prove those three points, right, if we can demonstrate from science, and we live in a, certainly we live in a scientific age where people think science is, is the only means of knowledge. Okay? They don't, that, that's called scientism, when you don't believe that you can have moral knowledge, you don't believe you can know about other things. Um, so science, you know, let's, let's use that. Science is, is, is a, it's at least a demigod to many. If we prove these three points, we will have proven the second premise of our argument, which says that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. So that's, that's, the, that's sort of the purpose for doing this. Uh, Gary, we're doing this this week. The, 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 the first week in August is when we pick up on Romans, right? So we're continuing this right through. So that would mean we probably have three more lessons in this. Two uh, after today. Is after this we're going to have a rotating teaching circuit on the Book of Romans. Okay, so if you've never studied Romans or you want to understand it well, come and you know you'll get some some varying perspectives. I'm sure the different sort of historical present day understanding. So in this session we'll also deal with the pro-abortion challenge. Quote: Just being human does not make you a person. End quote. Because that's, that's pushback. Okay, some of that pushback, and I'll mention this a few times, is, okay, yes, it's a human being, but that's different than being a human person. Okay? Being a person is different than being a human being. And that'll be sort of the philosophical part. So we have a scientific argument, and we have a philosophical argument. Okay? Dealing with criteria some people use to disqualify other people as people. And we'll see we've got a whole history of that as a country. And in some cases, even we as people do this, right? We disqualify some people as people on just this criteria that we come up with, that we come up with for the sole purpose of disqualifying that person as a person. It's not as if it's an objective sort of, well, this disqualifies you from personhood. No, we say this is what it counts to be a person. Since you're not that, you don't get to be counted as a person. And it is that simple. And we'll see some of the ways in history that's happened. So the only way really to refute our argument, if the scientific case is good, right, is that the unborn is, 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 is that the unborn kills a human being, the only way to refute our argument is to deny the first premise and change it to something else, which pro-abortionists immediately do. So you demonstrate the humanity of the unborn, and again, they'll go right to this argument in many cases. Well, yeah, but it's not, it's not the same as a, as, a, as a person. right? And you know that because of the objections you get. Okay, and we went over some of these. Okay, when we talked about uh, when we talked about the rape thing, for example, when they said if if abortion is outlawed, uh, you know, what about rape? And and what what I said was, and what the, the way the argument goes is, we don't allow the rape victim to kill the criminal that raped her. We don't allow that. Therefore, why should we allow the mother to kill the child as a result of that? And sort of one of the well, yeah, that's different though. I mean, the rapist is a person. Okay, so immediately, 
immediately you, you, you know that they're not talking about the same thing. They're saying, okay, in some way the unborn is not a person. Okay, that's, that, this sort of, they just betray that. They just, it's just part of their uninformed awareness. You know? Awareness is good, but awareness based on something false is not good. Okay? So, we're going to see that as well. And again, it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. The unborn is a human, but not a person. Therefore, it's okay to kill it. That's the logic that they have. And we'll, 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 dispense, we'll dispense with that as well. Let's take a look at the science. The first is that the unborn is alive. Well, that's not, that's not too uh, controversial, right? The unborn is alive. Is, yeah, Mark. Is viability really in view there when they stay alive? <clears throat> we'll get to that. Okay. Because that's one of the reasons why it would be disqualified as a person, because it's not viable. Okay? The question we're arguing through science right now is, is the unborn a human being? The question about viability is a question that's pressed into service later on in an attempt to say just being a human being doesn't qualify you for protection in human rights. You have to be a human person. You have to be a certain you have to have a certain level of functionality in order to be considered an equal person. It's so horrible, isn't it, when you put it that way? But that's exactly what it is. And we'll see that. Kelly, just for kicks and giggles. I'm ready. So misogynist is the name that we give to people that are sexist against women. What is the word that we use for people that are sexist against men? I was willing to wager a bet that you would know that word. Not off the top of my head. Okay. All right. I, I, I wasn't remembering it, and then I did remember it. It's misandry. And... Uh, well, you weren't here. I said, I bet you Kelly would know that word. But, uh, that's all right. I'm. Do you know why you're saying that? Because I took the class on Wednesday night. Oh, that's true too. That's true too. Well, I thought you would know it anyway. I mean, I was. It was a compliment, actually. It was just deferring to your intellectual prowess. Yeah. We often hear the claim, and you'll hear this: we don't know when life begins. You'll hear that, right? We don't know when life begins. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was part of it. That's right. But if no one knows when life begins, is this evidence in favor of elective abortion or against it? <laughs> Use this analogy. We don't blow up a building if we're not sure it's empty. <laughs> we don't blow up a building if we're not sure it's empty, right? There are people that do that. They do demolition. Somebody's got the job of making sure there's no people in there, right? So we check inside first. If we don't know it's empty, we don't proceed. Same thing goes with this argument here. We have to know if it's alive. If we don't know if life, when life begins, then we need to sort of figure that out. Yep. With what? Darwin speciesism? Yep. Yeah, well, uh, so... So Darwinist, if you're strictly, if you are a strict Darwinist, and speciesism is just what it sounds like, you're against that. You're 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 you're, in, you're saying that humans are better than any other species, which is part of Peter Singer's argument. I mentioned Peter Singer; he's the bioethics department at Princeton University. And so Harrison's point is, we don't really treat all life different as the same because we're speciesist. A human has no more value than an amoeba. We shouldn't kill an amoeba for the same reason that we don't kill a human being. You know. Um, and I guess, you know, that's, that's a... So I don't know if your question is, how, how would, you, I would, would you have that argument with a person? Uh, I guess I would somehow... Um, I guess with that person, I would bring them back to where does value come from? I would have that discussion. How do we determine what's valuable and what's not? You know? And that, and that would go down another road. So... But I wouldn't be surprised if such an argument came up. I mean, personally, I don't think we should if we found... And I know you're not advocating this... If we found microbial life on Mars, yeah, we should study it and whatnot. But I guess if we got nothing better to spend our money on. Um, I appear to be frozen. Did I? This is the thing about technology. It can be so great and such a drag. When you get frozen, you get frozen. Let me just power cycle this thing. In the meantime, I'll fire it up on my phone. Yeah. 
Man against machine, machine's winning. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't seen a man take this thing to throw against the wall yet. <laughs> then we'll see who wins. Okay. Bear with me, I'll just go get it off. I love paper. <laughs> yeah, paper is great. Yeah, you're probably right. I could. Let me just get right to where we're at. I don't even know. I can't, it's interesting because this won't even power off, which is really bizarre. It is an evil spirit. No question about it. Bear with me. We're almost there. This is the good thing about having it on the cloud, of course. If you have... If you, if you are a person with a computer and you don't save documents for the cloud, you lose your computer, you lose everything. So put it on the cloud. The cloud will never go down. The cloud will never go down. It will never fail. Well, the internet may fail for a time, but the cloud... Will, the cloud yeah. But hey, if, if, you, if you strictly want to do paper, by all means, be, be my guest. Knock yourself out, like. And the lights went out in New York Okay, hold on. I think I got this thing to finally shut off and power it back up. Okay, here we go. Then what you got to do when you get your phone is you got to make sure you swap over from... I'll have it going on both of them. If one fails, the other's good to go. Powering up. And you know what it is too, is they have an absolutely terrible, I have no internet down here, so I'm a little bit, uh, with a phone, I'm a little bit of a slave to that. Most people are. What is the? Uh, does anybody know the? Uh, anybody know the uh, password here? Like the internet? I was, well, actually, I have a signal. Just about there, folks. Thanks for your patience. Well, unfortunately, uh, I don't know that that'll do me any good. I've got, I pretty much have what I need. Um, it's just a matter of going from slide to slide now. I'm getting there. Okay. Okay, here we go. So if the unborn then, if the unborn is alive, if the unborn is alive, there are no grounds for this uncertainty. It simply isn't true that, the, that no one knows when life begins. It's, it's really as simple as trying to figure out, is the unborn alive? The unborn is alive from the moment of conception. There's no period of non-life, okay? There's no period of non-life exists in the sequence of events going from conception to birth. There is no time of non-life. That's not controversial. That's a scientific no-brainer. And that's the interesting thing about this. You know, there are things in life that are challenges, right? Real challenges. This is not challenging. The, the reason why this is so complicated, and again, it's because, in a way, 
as an overcorrection to past faults and past errors, for example, when, when women were not uh, afforded equal rights, uh, in, in what that really means, sometimes you do this overcorrection thing. There is a sense in which we have granted sovereignty. We have made gods out of all women. Because we've allowed it to be up to them to determine whether what's, in the, what's inside them is a life or not. Why do I say that? Again, some of the states recognize we have different laws. If you kill that unborn child in an accident, you get charged with two murders. But if a mother decides to terminate that, it's okay. What's the difference? Either it's a human being or it's not. What we've done is said to a woman, is you are God. You determine whether this is life or not. And that's what we've done exactly. Life doesn't begin at some stage of development. Okay? The unborn is alive at every single stage. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to get to the next stage. Okay? So there's this sort of unbroken continuum of life that stretches from beginning to end. Alright? Living, again, living sperm unites with living egg to form a living zygote. Okay? At that point, we should no longer call it a fertilized egg, by the way. Because in that point, when the two of those and the egg and the sperm come together, they both die and a new life is formed. There's a completely new union. That's, a, that's an awesome miracle, brother. Oh, it is. It is. And, don't even, and that's why we don't call it a fertilized egg anymore. You could just as equally call it a... a it's a dead sperm. You know what I mean? It's, it's Again, why do we do that? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's not a thing that we should do. The unborn is growing biologically. Okay? The unborn is growing biologically. Biological growth begins at the moment of conception, which proves the unborn is alive. Okay? The unborn possesses each of the biological criteria for life. This is standard biology, Okay? Three criteria, okay, for life. One is metabolism. What's metabolism? Yeah, right? You're just, just turning food into energy. You're just output. Growth. There's growth going on. There's reproduction of cells happening inside there. Constantly. As soon as that cell, you start with one cell. It's multiplying, it's multiplying, it's multiplying, it's multiplying. So there's growth going on. And there's reaction to stimuli. In other words, you do something to that, it's going to respond. Okay, whatever that, whatever sort of that stimuli may be. So it meets these sort of basic criteria for life in that way. So abortion kills the unborn. Okay? And doing so is the purpose of abortion. Right? Only something alive can be killed. I mean, that is the goal of abortion. The goal of abortion is not to protect the woman's right to choose. We've got to remember what is abortion. Abortion is the killing of something. I mean, it is that simple. Right? Uh, chemotherapy is an attempt to kill the tumor. Radiation is an attempt to shrink, reduce, to eliminate. Right? It, this is, again, this is nothing all that complicated. Why is it made so? Yes? So that means the morning after pill is also an abortion. Yeah, well, it's designed to. So here's the thing with the whole pill, and I'm glad you brought it up, because there's the pill and there's the morning after pill. <clears throat> there is a lot more evidence that the morning after pill causes abortion than the regular birth control pill causes abortion. Um, because of what it's intended to do. The pill does a couple of different things. And I, my science may be off on the, the, the morning after pill, but the main, the main thing, one of the things that the regular birth control, control pill does is it thins the lining of the uterus. And when that happens, it can make it more difficult for a concepted, for a, for a zygote, for a conceptus to implant on the uterus. Okay, so over the years, there's been a lot of game playing about when does life begin. Some people say implantation. Okay, they've used that. An implanted conceptus. Okay, which is wrong. Life begins at conception. So the question is, and so there's, there is some evidence out there that suggests it's possible that a conceptus, you know, could form and then it would not be able to implant in the lining of the uterus because there's evidence, indirect evidence to suggest that, that, well, there's no question about it scientifically that, the, uh, that there is thinning of the uterus. That's, that's observable and that's everything else. But there's no way of saying this could happen to one in a thousand conceptus. This could happen to one in 20,000. So it's, it's, there are people on both sides of that of that position within the pro-life camp, uh, it would be wrong to to assert. I, I think, and I think it's a decision that people sort of have to make for themselves. Uh, I know I don't think I be, because uh, Chris and Elena brought this up in our group. 
They said they don't, they don't use birth control pill because they believe it, it causes abortion. Well, it may. There's a, there's, there's a possibility that it may prevent a, uh, a conceptus from attaching to the lining of the uterus. What that statistic, statistical possibility is, how often it happens, is vastly unknown. And to insist that it's known otherwise isn't being fair to the science that's out there. The morning after pill has like a whole lot more of that hormone in there. And it's designed to present, for, prevent fertilization. It's designed to prevent, and it's also much more likely to uh, thin the uterus that quickly, I guess. But the morning after pill um, is much more widely recognized as abortifacient than sort of the regular birth control pill. Because it's designed to stop immediately. I don't know why that's doing that. Um, that's sort of the best that I can say about that. There's a, so the morning after pill does have abortifacient qualities and is designed in any case to prevent and will do so. It's much more likely to... to it, in that case, it's much more likely to cause an abort, a conceptus than the regular birth control pill would because of the amount of hormone that's used. Yeah. How quick does it occur? And the reason why I ask that is when you say the morning after, let's say it happens in the morning... And it takes 30 seconds or 30 minutes after the event occurs. No, uh, well, some can. Some sperm can penetrate the egg in 30 minutes. Or up to 48 hours. Yeah, so, you know, that's just science. You get some sperm that just go, go, go. Oh, this is just takes longer. There's no... They didn't ask the direction. There's no... Yeah. There's no... There's no... There's no way to tell. There's no... There's no... Mm. So, you know, they want to sort of get on it the sooner the better. They want to prevent conception from happening. Um, but it is much likely to, to, to sort of abort than, say, the regular birth control pill. There's also a case that can be made that the inner uterine device can also have the same thing because it does release a hormone that it also can be potentially because it would thin the lining of the uterus, could cause the conceptus to not be able to attach. My, my thought is, I don't know what the statistical probability of that is. Okay, so the goal in doing that, the goal in doing that is not to abort, the goal in doing that is to prevent birth from happening. So I think that's a little bit different in any case. For the same reason, I believe, let's say, let's say, that this, let's say it was determined that the statistical probability of that happening is the same as the statistical probability of getting killed in a car crash. Would you stop taking your child into the car because of that? That's, I mean, that's what I would ask myself. What are the statistical probabilities of certain things that can cause death? And that's how I would apply that. You disagree, Kelly? I do disagree. How I come? I think those are equal scales. Why not? You might be right. Because the idea that conception can happen in 30 seconds or 48 hours yeah. is pretty instantaneous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, healthy sperm, healthy eggs. And statistically, getting pregnant is very high. Mm-hmm. Although they tell you in paperwork it's not. Mm-hmm. But if you look at our, our culture, it's very high. We wouldn't have so many abortions. Mm-hmm. So it's a very high incidence of probability of getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. So it's not a it's statistically it's not as high in car accidents. No, but the, I, I understand that. My, my question is, is the statistical probability of birth control causing an, abort, an abortion how high is that? We don't know. We don't know, but we do know it prevents. It doesn't prevent conception. So therefore, we know it's going to prevent implantation. The birth control doesn't prevent IUDs conception. Does not prevent conception. Okay, I don't know about that. I'll go. I'll go by what you say. Because it happens in the fallopian tube. Uh huh. And the IUD is in the uterus. Uh huh. So that's why when people have a fallopian pregnancy, mm-hmm. they have to take that out because it's going to keep on growing and burst mm-hmm. the fallopian tube. Mm-hmm. So we know that for conception happens. Okay. So let's talk. So so then, in talking about the birth control pill, because the birth control pill is certainly intended to prevent con- uh, conception. So the question. So let's move to the birth control pill. If the birth control pill, again, what's the statistical possibility of death? Of, 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 of the death of a conceptus. I don't know. I'm putting a hypothetical out there. If it's as high as, if it's the same as, you know, uh, 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 if it's the same as, say, death by a car accident, what would be the difference between taking the pill and taking the child for a drive? One is intent. 
Yeah, but the intent in the but the intent in the birth control pill is not to abortion, it's to prevent conception. Only because people don't understand. But there's also yeah, but so they don't understand that there's the prob- the possibility of death. But there's also the possibility of death if you take a child for a drive within ten mile radius of your house. I don't again there's a possibility of death in any situation. Going to bed you can have a heart attack. Well no, I'm talking about putting a child I'm, I'm putting another human being in danger because that's the so that's the equivalent. What we're talking about is we're putting a, a, a human being in a potential life-threatening situation. Okay? Well, no, they don't, but you and I do. So I'm just talking about you and I see it the same way. And what I'm saying in this case is, for the same... Uh, one of the questions I ask myself is, if it's possible that in an attempt to prevent... Uh, in an attempt to, pre- uh, to prevent fertilization, okay, I also could potentially have a statistically really small possibility of also killing a human being that's there if, I, if I'm going to take my ch- if, if, the, if it's statistics, let's say 1 in 10,000 if the statistics are 1 in 10,000 that if I take my child within a 10 mile trip of my home we're going to die in a car accident I'm putting that child in the same dangerous situation as the person who's taking the birth control pill is because the goal is not to kill them I mean the goal isn't to, the goal is to get from point A to point B so we have a goal that is not the death of the child. But one of the possible outcomes is the death of the child. So logically, I don't personally see the difference, but I could just have a... I, if there was a choice, if there was a young girl who wanted to have sex and did not want to conceive a child, and the option was to take absolutely no birth control whatsoever and have a 100% chance of getting pregnant, or taking the birth control pill and maybe having a 1 in 10,000 chance of maybe killing a baby if maybe an egg gets fertilized, I would recommend that she take the pill. Right. And that's a moral choice. Yep, and, and, and different Christians make that choice. But my, what I'm doing with, what I'm trying to do is say this, if the statistics, and we don't know what they are, again, I'm assuming the statistics are the same, I don't see the difference between putting a, a, a life in danger in one situation. In both cases, you're deliberately knowing that this could happen, you're deliberately putting that other person, that other human being, in danger of their life. And we do it all the time. We do it all the time. We do, but I don't, I don't see it as the same. Not for me morally. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to try to talk you out of it. So, um, so, the personal autonomy argument, by the way, a woman has a right to do whatever she wants with her own body, has two serious problems which we can bring to light using this sort of one-two approach. Serious problem number one, the statement's not true. Right? We already know a woman can't do whatever she wants with her own body in a civilized country. We, all, we talked about that a couple times. I mentioned it specifically, and I alluded to it in other times. Nobody gets to do whatever they want with their own body. Okay? In any civilized country, your right to do what you want with your body ends with my right to have my body and my right to protect it. So nobody has an absolute right like that. It's a ridiculous statement. It's wrong on its face, and people should have that pointed out to them immediately. No, you don't. Nobody has that right to do whatever they want with their own body. What you're saying is the law allows you to have an abortion, but one of the reasons it allows you to do that is this faulty premise that we have a right to do whatever we want with our own bodies. And yet we know that's not so. Because if I punch you in the face right now, I'm going to get arrested. So I don't have the right to do whatever I want with my own body, especially when the consequence of my doing whatever I want with my own body is physical harm to you. I don't get to speed. I don't get to inject needles in my arms. I don't get to. Uh, I don't get to buy prostitutes. I don't get to do a lot of things. The government constantly tells me what I can and can't do with my body. They have to. Why? Because that's what government is for. Why we have to? Because otherwise we would do it. Yeah. Government. Well, government is here to protect our rights. That's their primary purpose. It's to protect our what they rec- what the what the framers intended as our inalienable human rights, the the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You don't get to use your body to def- now. There's a whole range of what constitutes that, but why does the government do that? Because we all recognize that we ought to punish people to do that to other people. <laughs> and the government part of what the government does is they have this function to enforce what we collectively know is wrong. Unfortunately, that's always changing. The law can restrict what we do with our bodies, period. <coughs> Parents, again, have certain obligations toward their children that they don't have towards strangers. All right? We just know this. It's your own child. Number two, the serious problem, the unborn is not the mother's body. It's not her body. 
the unborn is not the mother's body. That's the question. What is the unborn? Not where is the unborn. Yes, the unborn is in the mother's body. But the life we're talking about is not the mother's body. Period. It's un- irrefutable. There's, there's no... It's a no-brainer. That is not her body. It's in her body. But it's a life. So we're not talking about geography. We're talking about ontology. The, that word ontology means what is it. The ontology of something is the what isness of the thing. Okay? The unborn can have a different gender from the mother. The unborn develops a separate brain and central nervous system. The unborn can have a different blood type. Okay? An egg with 23 of the mother's chromosomes unites with the sperm. 23 of the father's chromosomes, creating an individual living being at the moment of conception. The zygote is different from every other cell in the mother's body because it has its own unique chromosomal fingerprint. Yes, it shares certain things. It has certain things in common with the mother's DNA. That's why Ancestry.com is successful as it is. We can trace out our lineage through DNA, right? We can look at the microscopic um, building blocks of life and we can say, hey, this is common to this, this is common to this. Paternity suits are all based on DNA, right? I'm going to take your DNA and see how much of it matches with this person. If it has X amount of match, then we know you're the guilty party. Okay? Uh, DNA has gotten people out of prison that have been wrongly imprisoned for years because new DNA evidence comes along, right? And, and there we go. So it's a completely separate entity. Yes, Pat? We're going to talk about that. We're going to get to that. Stick around probably next week. We'll talk about why that's not a good argument. You're right, it's not. It can't survive without the mother. But we're going to talk next week about all kinds of people that can't survive without utter dependency on other people for life. It happens all the time. Okay, Somebody on, a, somebody on an oxygen machine. Do we say they're not viable because they're on an oxygen machine? If you take them off, they're going to die. But they're dependent upon that. Okay, So we're going to talk about other examples of that as well. So viability because some people are dependent on other people, isn't a good reason to kill. Uh, for that matter, in our culture, what we typically do, and we typically recognize, <clears throat> this was the 1970s American with Disabilities Act, we, uh, we tend to make sure we afford certain rights to make special provisions for people that can't do certain things. <laughs> we don't kill them, right? I'll talk about a little bit of the history of Nazism and how... But So, so y- you're right. It is, it is completely... Uh, non-viable, if viable means you can't survive without the mother. But we're going to find out that lots of terms that, times that term viability is just a way of dressing up a prejudice we have against people that can't function at a certain level. Okay? Assumptions that we make. Okay? The DNA fingerprint... Yes? I'm sorry. I don't want... I, don't, I know I just jumped in. It's okay. Your thought. You don't have to. I, I get easily derailed, but I get back on track just as quick. Okay, perfect. So Nick and I were talking about it the other day, and we're thinking, okay, so in the schools, which is one of the major culprits of why there's a lot of abortions now, I, yeah. I mean, that, that's what I believe at least. They teach sex education, how to do this, how to do that, yep. how to prevent this, how, how to prevent that. Well, why don't they teach the opposite, how to diaper your baby, right. how to feed your baby? Good question. Would it, you know, change the mindset of the young teens? Because... The assumption you're making there is that the mother is going to have that child, which will ruin her life. Well, that's the whole point. The, right, you shouldn't the, have your high school life ruined by a baby. Is their point? But if they have the choice to have a baby, shouldn't they know how to? Take because it? if they treat it that way, then they have to deal with the value of a human being. Oh, that's the last thing they want to do. I would think that's right. part of the answer. They don't want to do that. They don't want to teach you how to be a mother. They want to prevent, in their minds, you from being a mother, not realizing that you're pregnant. You already are a mother. Which That's is, the whole problem. It's funny. It's a double standard. Yeah, it's a double standard. Well, public yeah. schools teach um, evolution. Yep. So right. I mean, well, to some extent, they should teach evolution. Like they absolutely should teach evolution. I have no problem with that whatsoever. They should teach it all day long. And they should present. They should teach the problems with evolutionary theory as well. They should teach... They don't, though. They no, they don't. But, again, always be careful when you say the school shouldn't teach evolution. Evolution is a solid scientific, well-established fact. No question about it. But the question is, what kind of evolution? What, let's define evolution. What are we be talking about? If we're talking about changes within a species, there's no question about it. It happens all the time. It's observable, repeatable. Some animals have longer claws. Uh, you know, within the same... Look at dogs. We have all kinds of different dogs. I'll get to your question in a minute. We have all kinds of things happening within a species. 
But what we don't have evidence for is transition from one species to another. Darwinian evolution does not account for that. And Darwin himself, if he were alive today, would abandon his own theory. I can't get into why. But he would. So we should, but we should teach the controversy. The problem is the public schools don't teach it as if it's controversial. Same thing with climate they science. They teach it as fact. Same thing as climate science. Same thing, exact, exact thing. The, the science is, is, is all twisted up. Yep. Okay. So, uh, I just mentioned how we use DNA fingerprinting and all that. We, we all know that DNA tells us just how unique we truly are. We're able, through the microscope, to see that there is no one like us in the world. Right? Our DNA is that different. So clearly the unborn's body is distinct from the mother's body. It's a separate body resting in the protective, nurturing environment of her mother's womb where it belongs. That unborn is exactly where it's supposed to be. Period. That's where it began. It was never anywhere else. That is where it belongs. And I say that because there are those out there that would say that the unborn is kind of like a parasite. Okay? It's, it's there, just sort of got the unattached. That unborn child is exactly where science, but if you want to call it nature, has determined it's supposed to be. It's in its own natural environment. Where it's supposed to be. The unborn is a homo sapiens. Period. A human being. It is a human being. It has human DNA. The unborn's DNA indicates what kind of bodily form the adult is going to take. But even at this beginning stage, the zygote is still human. Okay? Uh, again, look back at yourself as a picture of you were seven years old. You very likely look nothing like that now. Okay? But that's you. That's the same you. The same you persists throughout every stage of your development. Okay? External evidence can deceive... But DNA gives unmistakable evidence telling us what kind of being any living thing is. The zygote can't develop in any direction, just any random direction. Okay, it isn't as if, well, it could become this, it could be... No. Only in a way consistent with its internal structure or nature. It can, a tomato seed can only grow into a tomato plant. You're not going to plant a whole field of, of peach trees and go out there in three months and find bananas growing on the trees. It's just not going to happen. It's an impossibility. Okay? Why? Because it has DNA. All the information is in there to tell it, direct it, what it's going to become, how it's going to become it. Everything is in there. Okay? Everything. Living things develop according to a certain physical pattern based on the kind of creature they already are. You're not going to morph into something else. You're not going to start out as a human. You're not going to... I don't know if it'll ever come the time when... You remember that movie, the fly? I think it was just the fly when the guy put himself into this transporter and a fly got in and somehow their DNA got mixed together in the transportation process and, and the one that came out last, Jeff Goldblum, right? He sort of becomes a human fly, right? He develops into a fly. But even then, that, are, that assumes a couple of things are happening genetically. But anyway, so living things develop according to a certain physical pattern on the kind of creature they already are. Human forms develop out of human beings. By day 43, the unborn has a beating heart and brainwave activity we can measure on an electroencephalogram. 43 days. The principle of biogenesis proves the unborn is a human being. What is the principle of biogenesis? To give it a real simple definition, you find it right back in Genesis 1. Yeah, life comes from life, but life, and, and take that one step further, like things come from like things, right? Uh, God said that every plant had fruit-bearing seed after its own kind, right? In the 19th century, scientist Louis Pasteur, among others, disproved the theory of spontaneous generation of life. Maggots don't spontaneously spring from discarded meat. Well, they didn't know this at one time. They figured if you left meat out and it turned bad, maggots would spontaneously come out of this meat. Right? Mice aren't spontaneously created from piles of rags. Okay? And so Pasteur's discoveries led to the principle of biogenesis, which states two things. First one, uh, Harrison mentioned, all life comes from pre-existent life. All life comes from pre-existent life. Non-life can't give way to life. It doesn't happen. Only God can do that. Second, each being reproduces after its own kind find that in Genesis and probably find it in, in other world religions. Since every being reproduces after its own kind, human beings can only produce other human beings. Right? 
Remember, we're arguing for what is the unborn. It's a human being. We're looking at the science as to how do we know it's a human being. Because it's got its own, potentially it's got a different gender than the host, than the mother. It's got a different, it's got a different, um, it's got a different, uh, uh, altogether different DNA. Its own central nervous system, its own heart. The individual living offspring of two other human beings must always be another human being. It can't be anything else. So if it's something that's alive and it's in her, and since humans can only make humans, then that thing has to be a human. So when someone says, maybe the unborn's alive, but it's not a human, ask them these questions. How do we distinguish a human from a non-human? Right? How can we know for sure that something is a human being? Right? Here's some objections. But the fetus doesn't look like a human being. Sure it does. We can respond that the fetus looks exactly like all human beings look at that level of development. <laughs> that fetus looks like every other human fetus. It looks like every other human at the fetal stage. So we learn an important lesson. Living things never look the same at one stage of development as they do another. As I said a minute ago, look back to when you were seven. Most of you could not be... Maybe I could, but with some of you, sometimes we have sort of identifying features. But we change drastically over time. But change, In fact, change is a necessary component of biological development. We, living things constantly change according to a predetermined pattern of growth. Predetermined meaning it's, it's coded in the DNA. <coughs> a monarch butterfly goes through many stages of development, from egg to larva to chrysalis to winged butterfly, but it always remains a monarch. It always remains a monarch. The unborn is an immature human, like an infant. Living things do not become entirely different creatures in the process of changing their form. Rather, they develop to a certain physical pattern Precisely because of the kind of being they already are. You'll become, uh, Lord willing, an old man someday, right? Because you're a middle-aged man now, right? So, uh, you know, a little man over here will one day be a teenager, okay? He's not a teenager right now. He, he's, he's a little, he's a toddler just about. He's out of the infant into the toddler stage just about. But he's going to become a teenager. He's going to become a teenage human, because he's a toddler human. Alright? A fetus is potentially a teenager. And a teenager is potentially a grown-up. But each is actually a human. Human. They're not potentially humans. That's another thing you hear. Well, that's a potential life. No, it's not. We've already established life begins at conception. We've already established that it's human. It's not a potential human being. I would like to say it's a human being with potential, right? But it is not a potential human being. Each stage is a human development stage, regardless, again, of age or development. And unless somebody impedes upon that developmental continuum, it's going to get there. Okay? Whether it's disease or somebody, whatever. And next week we'll pick up with the unborn is only a blob of living tissue, not a human being. But the same, the same reasoning will apply. Uh, again, not that complicated. All right, Greg, pray. Pray, please.